This morning, we're looking at Mark 1, 14 to 28. I'm going to read the passage a lot for us, and then we'll walk through it together. But let me just tell you in advance the three main things that we're going to look at together today. These are the three truths that I'm going to point us to again and again as we walk through this passage. First, in verses 14 and 15, I want you to note the message of Jesus. And then in verses 16 through 20, I want you to note the call of Jesus. And then finally, in verses 21 through 28, the authority of Jesus. So message, call, and authority. Let's read God's word together, church. Mark 1, starting in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said of them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Life Church, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's start with the message of Jesus. In verse 14, Mark tells us, came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Gospel. That's the same word that Mark used in chapter 1, verse 1, which we looked at last week when he wrote the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that word gospel, which just means good news, that's a word that's really in the theological dictionary for most Christians today, isn't it? Well, last week I made the point that it was also in the regular dictionary for most Roman citizens in the time of Jesus, because this word gospel, meaning good news, it was regularly used throughout the Roman Empire. In the Roman world, a gospel was an announcement of something that had happened in history, maybe the birth of an emperor or a victory in battle. For example, when the Greeks defeated the Persians in the Battle of Marathon, that's a famous battle in world history. But when the Greeks defeated the Persians at Marathon, 
they sent heralds through the countryside proclaiming gospel to the surrounding cities. They proclaimed, we have fought for you and we have won and you are slaves no longer. Now you are free. And the Romans would have called that announcement gospel, good news. Good news that changed things. Good news that meant that everything was different moving forward. And so Jesus comes and he proclaims good news. He comes proclaiming gospel. And I pray that we just never fail to marvel at this because what Mark is telling us is that at its very core, like if you distilled its supreme essence, what Jesus came to declare, well, it's news, but it's not advice. Jesus didn't come to give us good teaching. He didn't come to give us good instruction. He did those things. But his primary mission was not to declare some bit of instruction that might make you right with God and bring you back to him. His primary mission was not to declare some good teaching that would help you fix your life and pick yourself up by your bootstraps and clean yourself up a little bit. No, Jesus came declaring news, the good news of what God has done in time and space in order to save people from their sins. Jesus came declaring good news about God's action that is in history and completely outside of us in order to redeem us and to adopt us into his family. And this is good news that that changes everything, like victory in battle, like freedom from slavery. You see, at its core, the message of Jesus and the message of Christianity is not, here's some advice to make your life better. No, at its core, the message of Jesus and the message of Christianity is a revelation of what God has done in history to make your life new. Now, of course, what God has done in history and time and space, like it does demand a response from us. And Jesus, he summarizes that response. Really, in verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then here's the response. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now that's odd, isn't it? Why would Jesus call people to repent? Why would good news demand repentance of us? Well, this is critical. Like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. By that he means the high king of heaven has himself drawn near. But in drawing near, he brings about a crisis for everyone who has heard of or witnessed his coming. The gospel that Jesus has come, like it brings about a crisis still for us today. That English word crisis, it's a translation of a Greek word which simply means judgment. Right? When Jesus appeared, he brought about the most profound crisis that humanity has ever faced, and and he still does bring about that crisis today. You see, no one can hear about this good news, about this gospel, without being drawn into the crisis. As you're sitting here right now, this crisis is facing you. If you're hearing the sound of my voice in this moment, this crisis is facing you. It's facing you if you've never heard this good news before, and it's facing you still even if you've been trusting in this good news for decades. Every one of us is facing this crisis. Because when Jesus came and when he brought the kingdom of God near, he was saying, in essence, you're not ready for me. 
You're not ready for the kingdom that I bring. Therefore, get ready by repenting and believing in the good news that I am declaring. But no one can walk away from that invitation in true indifference. Right? That's the crisis. Like either we accept it, and accepting it will mean ongoing repentance and belief, or we'll reject it. And some of us, we really wish there was a third way. We really wish that we could remain kind of neutral or indifferent to Jesus and to his good news. But that simply isn't a thing, right? Indifference is not an option, which is why the gospel means a crisis for all of us. It's a, it's a two-edged sword. For those who repent and believe, it means good news. It means life and peace for all eternity. But for those who reject it or even seek to be indifferent to it, it's a crisis. That word means judgment. That means judgment for eternity. And so what is your response to the crisis that comes into the world because Jesus, the high king of heaven, has come into the world. The message of Jesus demands that we consider that. Now consider the call of Jesus. In verse 16, Mark tells us that Jesus is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee, and there he sees Simon and Andrew fishing in a boat, and he calls to them, Verse 17, he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And then Mark tells us, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. In verse 19, the whole thing repeats now with James and John, the two sons of a dude named Zebedee. Jesus comes, Jesus calls, James and John follow. Now let me just point out a couple of things about this call here if I can. First of all, I want you to consider the fact that Jesus is the one who initiates this whole relationship, right? Jesus is the one who comes, and Jesus is the one who calls. It was very common in the time of Jesus for Jewish rabbis to accumulate followers, right? They would travel around in the countryside teaching, and they would gain pupils or disciples who would come from them to learn their teaching and their way of life. But the thing about that was the relationship between a Jewish rabbi and his pupil, that was a relationship that was always initiated by the pupil, right? The learner would come to the teacher and say, I want you to teach me, and here are all the reasons why I'm going to be a good student for you, right? The pupil would have to sort of establish his credentials and qualifications for the teacher, and then the teacher would decide, I think this guy is worth my time or not, but all of that was initiated by the one who was going to follow. Jesus turns that procedure completely upside down. He approaches first. He calls his followers first. He offers the invitation that initiates the relationship. And notice that it does not seem that he cares much about qualifications at all. Right? His first followers are fishermen, not exactly five-star prospects if you're looking to build a college of students, right? He meets Simon, and I probably just offended fishermen. I didn't mean to, really, sincerely. Two of you thought that was funny. He meets Simon and Andrew and James and John, and he meets them exactly where they were. When he calls them exactly as they are, he embraces them for exactly who they are, 
the only thing that really seems to matter here is the fact that Jesus is calling. And church, I'll just tell you that the same thing is true today. Right? Jesus does not call his people based on the qualification or credentials of his people. Nor does he wait for his people to make themselves impressive in his eyes before he calls them. Still today in his grace, Jesus comes to us. Still today in his grace, Jesus initiates relationship with us. Still today in his grace, Jesus beckons us to follow him. The second thing that I want you to notice here is that while the offer to follow Jesus is unearned and undeserved, right? it comes freely, would maybe be a better way to put that. While the offer to follow Jesus comes freely, that doesn't mean that it's a cheap offer. On the contrary, it's quite costly. I want you to notice that even in Mark's really short version of this story, each pair of followers leaves behind something significant from their lives in order to follow Jesus. In the case of James and John, they leave their family behind. Verse 20 says, And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, many of us might miss this because of kind of our cultural background, but in ancient and traditional cultures like that of the Bible, much of a person's identity was really built on and derived from their family, which is why Mark, when he introduces us to James and John, he calls them the sons of Zebedee. He's saying this is their identity. They're from the family of Zebedee. That's who they were. Right, their family had determined their identity, your sense of who you were. It came from your people and your place in ancient cultures like the culture of the Bible. In cultures like this one, it was really rare for people to ever like, leave home. It was rare for families to move from one town to the next, even because of so much of your identity as people was rooted to your place. And even like, that's, that's why James and John are fishermen. Right? They're fishermen because Zebedee was a fisherman. And so you didn't depart from the occupation of your father because so much of what you inherited from your father was the identity that your father had established for himself. And so identity was tied to a people into a place. Some of us in the room right now, we come from cultures very much like that, where people just don't leave home and they don't leave their family behind. And to move in a way that moves them away from their family heritage means a profound dynamic in their own identity. But Jesus, he calls James and John to leave behind these traditional identity markers, to leave behind the family unit that formed so much of their identity. But then notice that in the case of Simon and Andrew, it isn't family that Mark highlights as being left behind. Right? Mark highlights the fact that they leave their occupation behind. Verse 18, Jesus calls them, and then immediately they left their nets and followed him. Simon and Andrew, they abandoned their occupation. And the truth is, in, in modern Western cultures, like the one that most of us have inhabited for our, our whole entire lives, we might leave family behind, 
In fact, we might even see leaving family behind as like a mark of maturity, right? That's something that a young person does when they're finally of age, when they're adults. They leave their family behind and go and establish life for themselves. And so that's a very common kind of identity change for us. But what is uncommon for us is this notion of leaving your occupation behind, right? In modern Western cultures, we derive so much of our sense of value and worth from what we accomplish and from what we do and from what we achieve. Yet these are the very things that Simon and Andrew are called to leave behind for the sake of following Jesus. And so the point that Mark is making here is that following Jesus is costly. It's free, but it's not cheap. Because while Jesus offers you life and gives you the gift of his saving grace freely, he demands everything of you in return. Right? He intends to rule as king over every part of your life in return, especially the parts of your life that you're most tempted to build your identity upon. Right? Jesus wants to be king over the things where you're tempted to look to those things for value and worth and identity. Now, I want you to consider just how radical that is. Most people in the world that we live in, in our culture today, most people, we think of religious commitment on, this, on like this spectrum, right? And so a spectrum has two extreme opposite ends. So on one end of the spectrum today is what, what we might call nominalism, right? This is people who maintain a religious belief in name only. That's what nominalism means. And so I'm talking here, at least in a Christian culture, about people who maybe celebrate the Christian high holy days, and they would claim to be Christians, they would name themselves as Christians, but there's very little in their lives that seems to actually back that up, right? They don't, they don't live in particularly Christian ways, and they maybe don't even hold on to the tenets of Christian belief. Rather, they just call themselves, they identify themselves as Christian, even though they don't live like that at all, right? And so that's one extreme of the religious spectrum, right, in our culture, nominalism. On the other end is fanaticism. These are people who are zealots. These are people who, who take their faith so seriously, we think, that they can't help but rub other people's faces in what they believe. These are people who constantly look down on other people because of what they believe if they don't believe what they believe. These are people who constantly are putting other people down, and they seem to us, these zealots, these radical fanatics, they seem to us just one step away from the kind of crazy that leads somebody to put on a sandwich board and stand on a street corner and shout at cars as they drive by. And so most of us in our culture today, we're used to thinking about that is the kind of spectrum of religious belief and conviction, right? Nominalism over here, fanaticism over here. And most of us, either consciously or subconsciously, what we really want to be is right in the middle between those two poles, right? We don't want to be nominal. We definitely don't want to be fanatical. We want to be moderate. We want to aim for the center. We want to be in the middle. But here's the problem. You can either build your identity on Jesus or on something else. There really isn't a middle ground here. There is no moderation here. Either your sense of value and worth comes from being a child of God, or it comes from something else, period. 
That's why Jesus, he calls his disciples to leave behind the thing that they're tempted to build their identity upon. For some, it's family. For some, it's career. But Jesus keeps calling people away from those things and inviting them to build their identity on him. I mean, he just does this throughout his life. In John chapter 4, he calls on the woman at the well to leave her relationships behind because she has made those relationships the very center of identity. In Mark 10, he calls on the rich young ruler to leave his riches behind because those riches have become the very center of his identity. In Luke chapter 19, he calls this man named Zacchaeus to leave his occupation behind because Zacchaeus is clearly using his occupation to like get power and leverage over other people socially. This is what Jesus does. Right? Whatever you're tempted to build your sense of worth and value upon, he wants it. Because he wants you to build your sense of worth and value on him. He calls you to leave behind anything that's going to stand in the way of that. And church, there just is no middle ground here. This is one of the reasons why we struggle to genuinely follow Jesus. It's because we sense that in order to follow him, we're going to lose control of what really matters most. We're going to lose control of the thing that we tend to build our identity on. We're going to have to surrender to him. Because following Jesus means submitting to his authority rather than holding on to our own authority. Authority. That's the theme of the last section of this passage here, the authority of Jesus. Mark tells us in verse 21 that Jesus goes to a village called Capernaum. Now we're going to see in the weeks ahead that Capernaum becomes really like a home base for Jesus' ministry when he's in Galilee in the opening chapters of Mark. And in Capernaum, one Sabbath day, Jesus, he enters the synagogue and starts teaching. Now that seems a little bit weird to us, if we're honest, right? If somebody just wandered in off the street and walked up on the stage and like somehow grabbed this face mic off of my head, um, we would not look favorably upon that and our security team would be in here pretty fast to escort that person away and we would try to move on as if nothing had happened. We wouldn't do what happens here, but what happens here is actually pretty standard um, for a synagogue in a place like Galilee in the first century. A synagogue was just this small gathering of Jewish believers. If a village or town had 10 or more Jewish adult males, they could have a synagogue there. But synagogues didn't have like a, a full-time permanent pastor or teacher there. Rather, rabbis would just kind of wander from town to town and village to village. And if a rabbi showed up in a town on a Sabbath day, then he would often be invited into that town to teach in their synagogue. And that's, that's what happens with Jesus here, right? He comes in, he's invited in probably to teach in the synagogue. But I want you to notice that the character of Jesus' teaching sets apart what happens. Verse 22, the people were astonished at his teaching. They were stirred up by his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. As one who had authority, Mark says. Now you can probably hear in that word authority the same root word as our word author, which tells us a little bit about what it means to have authority. When you're the author of a story, you control the story. 
The characters do what you want them to do. The characters say what you want them to say. They experience what you want them to experience. You oversee and determine every event and every circumstance so that they serve your purposes as the author. And most importantly, you're the creator of the story. As the author, you aren't adapting someone else's work. Rather, you're creating your own work. And so when Mark tells us that Jesus taught as one who had authority, that's really what he means. Jesus teaches about the story of life as the very one who's writing the story of life. Now, the scribes and the religious leaders in the synagogue, at best, their authority was derived, right? It was always derivative upon what somebody else had taught. And so a typical scribe would come into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi such-and-such says that. And their authority was always dependent on what somebody else was teaching. But Jesus shows up, and he teaches with authority not like the scribes. He writes the story as one who is making life's rules. He's the original author, the one with all the power. And the people are amazed at it. They're stirred up by it. In the synagogue on that day, the people heard Jesus' authority in his teaching, but then they even saw his authority when he rebuked an unclean spirit and exercised it from the man that spirit was possessing. Right in verse 24, that unclean spirit possessing a man, it cries out to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now right there, the spirit is probably trying to control Jesus by naming him. There is this ancient and mystical belief that if you knew someone's name, then somehow you could exercise control over them by your knowledge of who they are. And that's what the Spirit is aiming to do here, I think. But I don't want you to miss this. Because earlier I said one of the big ideas in the Gospel of Mark is the fact that you can know something without really knowing it. Right? It's possible to have some information that's true, but not really to like, own that information at the level of your heart's apprehension of it. And isn't that exactly what this demon-possessed man is doing? Isn't that exactly what the unclean spirit within him is doing? Right? It's it's not for nothing that the very first being to confess truly who Jesus of Nazareth is in this story, but it's not one of Jesus' followers. It's not even the prophet who came beforehand preparing the way for him. No, it's this unclean spirit in this man in the synagogue in Capernaum. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But this demon knows that information without really knowing that information. And the demon doesn't worship Jesus. He doesn't trust in Jesus. He doesn't submit to Jesus' authority. He knows him, but he doesn't really know him. And that's why Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. Verse 25, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And just note how the crowds respond. Verse 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. In other words, he has authority over them. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
See, the point Mark is making is clear. Jesus, he teaches with authority. He has authority over unclean spirits. Next week, we're going to see him demonstrating his authority over sickness. The week after that, we're going to see him demonstrating his authority as the just judge of the universe because he has the authority to forgive sins. Right? What Mark is telling us is that Jesus is the king. He's Christ, Messiah. And as king, he has all authority on heaven and on earth. And that's really where the rubber meets the road for us, isn't it? That's really the point of crisis for each of us this morning. And that's because deep inside, we really want authority. Now, we're probably content to let Jesus have heaven. And frankly, we're probably content to let Jesus have everyone else on the face of the planet. But the truth is that we want to hold on to authority over our own lives, don't we? Or there might be parts of our life where we're we're glad for Jesus to have authority. But then there are other parts of our lives where we're holding on, where we really want to be the author, where we really want to have say over what way our lives go. We want authority over who we date or who we marry. We want authority over what we do for our career. We want authority over the way we raise our children or the ultimate outcome of their lives. Yeah, we're glad for Jesus to be king of other stuff and other people. But when it comes to me, we cling to authority. And that's why Jesus, that's why it's so hard for us to trust in him. That's why it's so hard for us to surrender our lives to him and follow him. Because we sense that if we're going to follow Jesus, then we're going to lose control. We're going we're gonna to lose the things that our hearts desire. But let me acknowledge this morning one thing about that desire. Let's say that even just hypothetically, you and I, we could have authority over our own lives. Let's say that somehow, some way, like that was permitted in the cosmos for you to be king over you or queen over you, for you to have authority over your own life and for me to have authority over my own life. Do you know how long that would make us happy? For like a hot second and no more. Because the truth is, what we desire and the ways that we would seek to use that authority over our own lives, those things are broken. Like our desires are broken. Our hearts are broken. And so you can follow your heart but at the end of that journey, where you're, wherever you land, there's not going to be a place of satisfaction and fullness and joy. Because God actually knows better than you what your heart really needs and what your heart really desires. In C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a character named Eustace who illustrates this, like, so perfectly. By the way, Lewis, he gives Eustace what is, in my mind, like, the very best introduction to any character in the history of literature, right? When we meet Eustace for the first time in this story, this is what Lewis writes about him. He says, there is a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. 
Thank you. I think that's fantastic. But Eustace Clarence Scrub in this story, he was a miserable boy. He hated everyone and everyone hated him. And his life was miserable and he was only happy if he could make everyone else miserable. But then magically, he, he finds himself in Narnia on a boat, the Dawn Treader. And, and one day, this boat, it stops at this remote island and Eustace wanders off on his own for a while. And he comes after a journey to a cave that's filled with gold and jewels. And instantly when he gets there, he thinks to himself, finally, I can have everything that I want. And so he like climbs onto this pile of gold and jewels and he eventually falls asleep dreaming about everything that he's now going to be able to purchase for himself, right? About all the desires in his heart that he's now going to be able to fulfill and to satisfy. He's thinking about the revenge that he's going to get on other people because now he's rich. And he's thinking about all the pleasures that he's going to be able to fill his life with because now he's rich. And so he's just dreaming of all of his desires coming true. But what Eustace doesn't realize is that this pile of gold is a dragon's hoard. And so when he wakes up, he's actually become a dragon in the story. And now, as a result, he's more miserable than he ever was before, right? His desires, they've changed him and corrupted him. He has become what he longed for. Now he is hideous. Just when he thinks that he has it all, he morphs into something uglier and worse than he's ever been. Now, in the story, Eustace, he uses his dragon claws, and he tries to peel off his own dragon skin, and it works. But the problem is that his, his heart issues are deeper than he can get to with his claws. And though he, he peels his entire skin off three times beneath it all, he's still a dragon, and he's just powerless to save himself. There's nothing he can do. Right? He got what he wanted, and it ruined him. And what Lewis intends for the story to illustrate is that we're just never going to find the freedom and joy that we long for by trying to be our own king and having all of our desires satisfied. Right? Even if we get everything that we want, we still won't be happy. We still won't be satisfied. We still won't have enough because our desires are broken and they're going to ruin us. Did you know that this is why it's actually because of the Lord's kindness that God does not give us everything? It's because if we got everything that we wanted, you and I, we would be just like useless. We would be ruined by our broken desires. No, the truth is we will only find joy and freedom if we know, if we truly know the true king. The king who loves us enough to not give us what we really want, but who is what we really need. The king who calls us to follow him, not just for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, but with every breath that we breathe. The king who's come announcing not good advice, but good news. You see, we can live life like Eustace Clarence Scrub. We can follow our hearts and try with everything that we have to be our own masters. We can hold fast to everything that we think we need. But in the end, our hearts will realize that everything we think we need is never enough. But that's when King Jesus comes. That's when he comes in his grace. 
He doesn't wait for us to get our acts together. In his grace, he he doesn't offer us good advice to fix all of our problems. In his grace, he comes as king. And when you surrender to the king, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts. But it is always good. Because our king is loving enough and powerful enough to give us exactly what we need. He's loving enough and powerful enough to be exactly what we need. And Eustace's story, Aslan comes. And Aslan, he's this ferocious lion. He's terrifying. He's powerful. He's strong. But Aslan is the king. And in his desperation, Eustace comes to Aslan. And Aslan, he uses his claws to peel back the layers of Eustace's dragon skin all the way to his heart. Here's how Eustace tells the story later. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he he pulled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And he caught hold of me and threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw that I'd turned into a boy again. Church, this is the power and grace and authority of Jesus, our King. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Is your life a joyful response to the King who has come bearing good news for you? Is your identity built upon your relationship with this King? Have you given him the place that he deserves on the throne of your heart? Have you responded to his kingdom with true repentance? Right? Have you felt the gravity of your sin? Have you forsaken them? Have you trusted in him with true faith and true belief? Have you rested in his person and in his works and in his character? I pray this morning that you would grab hold of and truly know the true king, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who will always give you not what you want, but exactly what you need, the one who came and lived for you and died for you because above all else, he is exactly what you need. I pray that we would know him. Pray with me. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might know you and trust in you. Not merely know some things about you, not merely understand intellectually some facts about who you are and what you've done. May we know you and be changed by that knowledge. Help our eyes to see. Help our ears to hear. We pray these things in your holy and precious name.
Amen.